Ready for Anything is sponsored by Intel. Small business owners can't afford to choose between A or B. If both help your business, you want A and B. With Intel powered two-in-ones, you get performance and mobility, power and freedom. That's the power of and. Experience it at smallbusiness.intel.com. Hello, and welcome to Ready for Anything, a podcast about getting poised for greatness. Today, our topic is adventure, and we are lucky to have two master adventurers with us who uh, just happen to have day jobs, the uh, brilliant and charming Tony Hale. Hi, Ben. <laughs> very good. Uh, he's the CEO of Chartbeat, a media analytics company. And there's also the uh, very smart interest and interesting John Levy, a behavior expert. Hey. Very good. I am Linda Lucina, the director of special projects at Entrepreneur Magazine. And I'm in New York City and very excited to welcome Tony and John for our very first ever podcast. Today, we're going to do three things talk about the adventures that shape them, look at what adventure really is, and think about what we learn from it and why it's important. All right, so um, I'd like you both to sort of rattle off your, uh, your top three adventures. Who wants to start? I'm going to give the uh, floor to my counterpart. My top three adventures, I would say, in order. In terms of, like, scariest moments as well, uh, so I spent four years leading and managing polar expeditions, and the scariest part of that was definitely navigating a crevasse field in a whiteout. That comes in number three. Number two was whilst I was on a round-the-world yacht race, um, going through multiple hurricanes and knockdowns. And then number one, I'd say, was marrying my wife. <laughs> a nice answer. A nice answer. What about you, John? Wow. Okay, so number three would be, I dropped myself off in a foreign city, not speaking the language, not knowing anybody, not having a way out. And the agreement I had with myself was either I was going to convince a stranger to put me up for the night, or I would be sleeping on the street. Uh, and that ended in a really interesting way. Uh, <laughs> number two uh, was actually more of an eye-opening adventure, uh, was just the intrigue of going to Burning Man. Mm, uh, yes. Like, it was nothing like anything I'd experienced before, and it shifted my perception on social experience. And then the number one would probably be when I almost died getting crushed by a bull in Pamplona during Running of the Bulls on July 7th, 2013, at about 9 a.m. All very good things. I, I, I cannot match any of them. Uh, I, I want to hear a little bit more. Uh, Tony, let's get into stories. Let's, uh, if you had one about, uh, about a hurricane, um, let's talk about adventures and how they shape us. Sure. When I first started um, doing stupid things like adventures, it, was, it started out in kind of sailing and ocean racing. It was even before racing. I was just, because uh, I, was, I was poor, the only way I could get any time on boats would be to deliver boats. So I'd deliver boats across the ocean from uh, on the Atlantic. It was my very first ever delivery of a 67-foot Bermudan cutter from uh, Plymouth in the UK to Boston in America. I spent the first probably week and a half uh, getting intimately familiar with my own vomit. After that, uh, the interesting stuff started to happen because from out of the blue, from a kind of a, a, literally from a, what was a beautiful, beautiful day and it become this beautiful evening with incredible colors and sunset, the boom of the boat suddenly swung hugely violently all the way across the, uh, across the boat, ripping out the winch that was actually bedded, embedded in the deck. We realized that we'd just been hit by a hurricane. And this became quite a famous hurricane, Hurricane Danielle. Um, and we were in the Grand Banks, which is the area where the perfect storm happened. This was a, this was kind of a fascinating moment for me because I, it gave me a chance to really kind of understand fear. And fear in these kind of situations isn't so much 
uh, something that we think of as fear in, in the normal way. Like often fear is when you're in anticipating futures that you'd rather not happen and you get scared about these futures. In a situation like that, you don't really have time to be thinking about the futures because you're just so in the moment. What I found was the consequence of fear was that I lost all initiative. If I was told to do something, I would do it. But apart from that, I was just basically a dumb automaton. And the storm got worse. And I remember there was this very clear point where uh, we'd, we'd been hit by a wave and the wind was so great that it actually forced the boat over so that the mast uh, of the boat, which was supposed to be up in the air, uh, was in the water. So the boat was so far over, it was, it was in danger of tipping over completely. And the water was kind of coming in and uh, coming over the sail. And we were in, in, in grave danger. And so there was a few of us up on the boom trying to kind of pull the sail in to stop it from kind of capturing uh, water and forcing us over. I realized that someone had moved my harness line. The one thing, like keeping me safe on, on the boat had been moved, which is like this egregious, egregious thing that could uh, that you should never do. And I was furious. I was utterly furious by this. And so I, I, I stopped and I was scrabbling to try and unhook my, my harness line from where someone had put it and put it back in the place where I wanted. And then I stopped for a second. Some small measure of sanity remained. And I followed my harness line from my, from my harness down to the boat where it was connected. And it was still in exactly the same place where I'd left it. I had been just about to unhook someone else and put them in incredible danger. So that shocked me. And I, like, we, we managed to get through the rest of the hurricane. But for, for the weeks afterwards, as I was thinking about this, it was this moment where I had, through not through kind of being malicious or through incompetence or anything like that, but through pure fear and lack of presence, had put someone else's life at risk. So there was a real question in my mind about whether uh, whether I could be the kind of person that could, could do this in the future. And fast forward two years, and I'm now on an ocean racing, uh, I'm on an ocean race, it's called, the, it's called the BT Global Challenge, it's supposed to be the world's toughest job race, although I, I would argue with that, Monica. Uh, Monica. <laughs> um, and we're again on the Grand Banks where the perfect storm is, and my skipper comes down from, uh, from above decks to where we're having our breakfast, and he says, hey, so you know how the perfect storm was three storms converging over the Flemish cap? And we were like, yeah. He says, good news. We've only got two. At which point, about an hour later, we got hit by another hurricane. And this was the thing that I'd been terrified by, this, this idea that I would not be able to live up to my, my team's demands, that I, would be able to, that I wasn't the kind of person I was. And the most incredible moment was when I realized that I had, to, I had to lead. I had to lead on the foredeck, which was kind of the pointy end of the boat where all the waves hit. I realized that I could take initiative and that I could help direct the team. And when other people were scared, I could kind of work them through what to do. That knowledge, that ability to, to change when one tests oneself and one absorbs those lessons and then one goes out and tests oneself again, like that knowledge of the ability to change and to be resilient has kind of stayed with me forever. And nothing, nothing else has ever kind of scared me in quite the same way again. Yeah, yeah that ability to act and yeah. realize how important yeah. and it's, it is. And it is the opposite of fear isn't bravery. It's initiative. It's the ability to act. Yeah, I think people forget about that. <laughs> John, what about yourself? What's, what's an uh, adventure that uh, really shaped you? That's a really interesting question. 
Actually, I'd, what I'd love to describe is how I define adventure. Sure. Because uh, the kind of stuff that Tony does is really different than the kind yeah, of unfair, stuff that I do. Unfair, frankly. Well, there's, right. there's, <laughs> kind of, there's kind of two orders of adventure. The kind of adventure that, that I do is, and, and John and I were talking about this earlier, is I think you call it like second order adventure, which is stuff that is only retroactively enjoyable. It's stuff that is horrible and miserable <laughs> and boring often at the at the time, but afterwards is, is fascinating. Whereas, whereas I think John has had much more experience with kind of first order adventure, the real kind of like living of life. Yeah, the way I define an adventure is it is an experience that is one, yeah. exciting and remarkable. It's yeah. worth telling a story about, sure. right? What we know about ourselves as a culture is that we pass information through our stories, our mythos. Second, it is something that uh, possesses adversity and or risk, but preferably perceived risk. And that's kind of, I think, where, where the line is drawn <laughs> between me and Tony. Brain will process them both just about the same, so you can get the effects of growth from it without necessarily putting yourself in direct peril or danger. Well, the uh, running of the bulls sounds pretty damn crazy to me. <laughs> Sometimes I make mistakes. What can I say? Things uh, happen. Things happen. <laughs> uh, third is uh, it brings about growth. The person you are at the end of the experience is distinct from the person you are at the beginning. Right? And so in light of that, I intentionally put myself in awkward and uncomfortable situations. Not all of them are fun the entire time. A lot of them are fun in retrospect. Uh, many of them are really embarrassing and uncomfortable, and I screw up a lot. Yeah. Uh, but the important thing is that the person I am at the end of the day um, feels different and distinct. That I get to look at myself and say, I may have not succeeded at what I wanted, but I took that as far as I could in a responsible way. Oh, that's interesting. And so that's what's really important for me. Even when I dropped myself off in a foreign country, I knew that if I just slept on the street, like, what's the worst that'll happen? I'll get a ticket or, you know, I won't get a full night's sleep. I'll walk through the night. Mm -hmm. But it was never a situation where I put myself in, in like, a disease-ridden environment where I could be exposed to a major pathogen, which mm -hmm. almost happened. Well, <laughs> but, sometimes in the apartment. But the... Uh, yeah. Yeah, and this is actually what John, I think what you're saying is, is so true because I think to the point about failure and in particular, like it's often rare when you're putting yourself out there when you try and do something where there is an element of risk, like failure is ever present. Mm -hmm. And that's okay and because in some ways what you're talking about, the kind of human growth happens regardless. It doesn't matter whether you have the medal on the wall. You still have that personal, like, like that inner growth, which is the thing that you're really seeking anyway. So, yeah, I mean, like some... Some of my greatest friends spent 10 years utterly failing to achieve every single goal they wanted to. Yeah. But in getting close to those goals, achingly close to those goals, they transformed themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, one of the interesting things is, for me, it's about um, not developing necessarily confidence, but competence. Yeah. Right? I continuously fail until I can get a level of competence at connecting with people. Or, I mean, I've done, I was curious how quickly I could connect with a stranger. And yeah. I, the fastest that most people say is like a few minutes or whatever. One day, it was 5.30 in the morning. I was in Stockholm, Arlanda Airport. And I'm going through uh, duty-free with my best friend, Liam. And we're on our way to Israel to uh, visit my family. And I'm grabbing some gifts. And uh, we're going through checkout. And there's this lovely girl sitting behind the counter. And she asks for my ticket to make sure I'm leaving the uh, EU so I can get duty-free. And she looks at the ticket and she goes, oh, Israel. I go, yeah, do you want to come? And she goes, yeah. I said, then come. She says, I'd love to, but I'm a graduate student and it's really expensive. 
Now, I didn't budget for any of this, but my, for whatever reason, the first words out of my mouth were, oh, I'll cover the cost of your trip. Just come. And she goes, okay. So next thing I know, I'm pulling out Kayak on my phone to search for flights. Liam is now helping people bag their things because there's a huge line. All of the other registers are looking over, wondering what is going on with their coworker, which led all of the customers to now look over. Yeah. And then we're starting to bag people's stuff up. So this one guy starts yelling at us, going, no, you can't do this. It's a security risk. You, it's unacceptable. Security's going to ask me if I packed my own bags. And I have to say, and we're going to Israel, so I have to say what happened. And you can't do this. So now I'm thinking, oh, my God, we're going to get this girl fired. So I'm like, when's your break? She says, 25 minutes. I say, meet me at the restaurant across from Duty Free. 25 minutes later, we book her ticket. And that's when I realize I don't even know her name. <laughs> So we exchange names, and I say, okay, I'll see you in Israel in 24 hours. 24 hours later, I had no idea if she would show up. Yeah. I knew nothing about this girl. She had a name so common, I couldn't even Google her. So she shows up. We are visiting my, um, my parents at their house in, in Hod. It's this artist colony. Uh, she wins over the entire family. She travels with us for a week, Tel Aviv, in Hod, a lot. We went to Jordan with her to Petra. The entire family loved her. She became like one of our closest family friends. While we were in Eilat, the most incredible thing happened. One day, uh, she, I walk into her room, and she's, she's crying. And I'm, I ask her, you know, what's going on? And she was the kind of person that never wanted to burden anybody with anything. And she said, John, the reason I accepted the trip, uh, the invitation on this trip is because for the past couple of years, I haven't gotten to do anything for myself. My father's dying of ALS. Mm -hmm. And uh, everything back home reminds me of everything that's happening. I'm even studying at a school I don't want to because I wanted to be closer to him. Yeah. And, you know, Liam and I were there, and we literally didn't know what to... Uh, you know, my life is far from perfect, besides, like, hugging her. Um, but then we dedicated the rest of the trip to just making it this incredible adventure. So we took her, like, you know, bridge jumping and to dolphins and, like, anything we could to just make it more extraordinary. And the most amazing thing was on her last day when she left, there was this moment where she kind of turned to me and she said, like, John, why, you know, you could have invited anybody on this crazy trip. Why, why did you invite me? And my response was that you, she actually had it all wrong. It wasn't that I chose her. It was that she chose us. Yeah. She was the person who said yes because nobody says yes. Like the number of invitations I've given to people is, is countless. The number of people who've accepted is about three. And so it's kind of like a litmus test. And anybody who's willing to do that is probably somebody I want to hang out with. And so uh, five minutes after her flight, coincidentally, was my brother's flight with his wife and daughter, who everybody had tra been traveling together. So they picked her up in Stockholm, took her out to dinner, and then she babysat while my brother and his wife went out. And so she's been this incredible family friend ever since. That's amazing. My dad still asks about her. He's like, aren't you going to marry that girl? And I'm like... Who's that nice girl? Yeah. Aren't you going to marry that girl? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a really interesting thing. And I think, John, uh, one of the things that um, uh, fascinates you is the, the adventure of social boundaries, of crossing mm, those social very boundaries. Much. Oh, what interests you about that? What intrigues you? In my study of adventure, I discovered that every adventurous experience follows a predictable four-stage process. Each stage has specific characteristics that make it exciting when you follow them. And an adventure isn't an adventure unless you cross or go beyond your comfort zone. You have to cross some kind of social, emotional, or physical boundary. And social boundaries are this fascinating thing, which are boundaries that are 
so ingrained in our perception of reality that we don't even notice that they're there. They're not real. It's just as a society, we've agreed that it's real without ever having a conversation about it. Because if you go to different countries, the rules are different. So uh, what I find incredible about crossing a social boundary is that you kind of just have the, have the guts to do it. And when you do, you feel the sense of freedom that the rules don't apply to you anymore, that like you're beyond them. Now you have to be careful because if you continuously do it in your environment, you'll develop a reputation and nobody will want to be around you. But <laughs> Have uh, you got into trouble there? Uh, yeah, for sure. I've, uh, especially when I was in Berlin. So in Berlin, the cultural norms are much more strict than they are in, in the U.S. And so the, like when I was trying to like jump over gateways and you know, just talk my way into places, somebody literally hit me trying to walk into a club. They're Bolton, exactly. <laughs> like, but it was shocking to me. And so, yeah. I've it's weird because kind of jumping over walls is something of a talent of the Berliners. <laughs> well played. But here in New York, uh, nobody really notices. So I've like crashed weddings. I've, you know, uh, led guided tours that weren't real. Like, you know, anything you could imagine, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Uh, I'll serenade people in public that I don't know, and it's embarrassing for them. It's also embarrassing for me, but I'm willing to do it. You're basically a real-life Judd Apatow movie in some ways. <laughs> uh, yes, or more like I'd like to go with Heath Ledger in uh, 10 Things I Hate About You. That's a good one. Because he's much more handsome and dashing. <laughs> <laughs> and possibly you get to meet Julia Stiles. So yes. <laughs> I have a story about that, but we'll save that for another, <laughs> another interview. Well, what, do you, what is it that people aren't understanding about adventure that um, both of you from the other side can share? What, what, I know that, uh, Tony, you talked a little bit about um, the joys of hauling a 400-pound sledge behind you. you know? I mean, what aren't people getting? What, what don't they see? Well, I think, I think the one thing uh, that, that people don't understand until they've done it is that it's, it's really just about beginning. It's that first step. Because people see this like huge thing in front of them, they're terrified of, or they, they say, "Oh, I could never do this." And you take your very, very first step on this path, and the universe just rushes towards you. The number of people who will, if you ask them, will actually help. Like, uh, I now run an, an internet company, and I knew nothing about the internet. I had no business experience. I, you know, when I started, uh, when I started doing polar expeditions, I had never. Uh, put on a pair of skis before in my entire life. And likewise, when I decided that I want to get into ocean racing, I'd spent maybe a, a week on a boat when I was a kid. But you kind of take that first step. And by, sheerly, by merely showing initiative and, and saying, I want to try and do this, it's amazing how quickly the kind of the world reforms to help you do it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like it's getting over that, that first thing and just beginning um, that is the kind of key here. And, and you've said that too, John, that there's just this, um, uh, people don't put enough credence in other people's willingness to sort of help. Yeah, one of the things I like to do is put myself in terrible situations uh, because it, it, it focuses uh, me to connect with strangers. And people are amazingly generous. Uh, but to your earlier point about what don't people know is that there's this, I would assert, this perception that only a handful of archetypes are capable of having adventures, like the ragtag group of misfits like the Goonies or the billionaire playboys like Tony Stark, right? There's, our culture is so built around these archetypes that uh, we've developed a, 
a belief that it's not available to us, that there's something special about them. I would argue something completely different, that most people, when you talk to them, they say that the most extraordinary or adventurous experiences of their lives happened by chance. They were somewhere, and then it, something happened, and then they ended up uh, hanging out with a celebrity and getting drunk or whatever it was. But if it was truly random, if it was just by chance, then all of us would have similarly exciting uh, lives, and we know that that's not true. And thereby, there must be a method to it. And the method isn't that complicated. If we were to really just boil it down, it's, a lot of it is just about novelty. It's about breaking your routine. So instead of walking the same way home, taking a different path. And as long as you're open to the novelty, then you can have an amazing experience. The other thing you have to be open to is, and Tony knows this probably far more than I do, is a willingness for discomfort, right? A willingness to be uncomfortable. Uh, not necessarily in pain, just kind of like in an awkward situation or an uncertainty. It's a great place to be because that's where the magic happens. And no explorer or adventurer has ever been in a situation without uncertainty or without discomfort. Yeah. I think um, one of the things that you and I had talked about, Tony, was um, the long walk uh, with no progress um, in the in the sort of your, your polar expeditions uh, and, and how, what that has sort of taught you about it, true adventure, right, uh, in that you're, you're really you have to be comfortable, like being uncomfortable. Um, what are your thoughts on that? That people sort of uh, sort of step over the hard stuff when it comes to <laughs> uh, adventure. Well, I think it's. I, I think people underestimate just how, just how much discomfort they can be comfortable with in some ways, and they, yeah, it can be it can be tricky. Like, and so yeah, when we were talking the other day, it was it was always instructive. So in Greenland, when you're on the ice cap, you will bring down your tent uh, sometime in the morning or the with 24 hours sunlight, it can be whenever you like, really. <laughs> and the, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty handy like that. You look out across this kind of blank white vista and you start walking, you're dragging a heavy sledge and you're kind of going through kind of snow and the sun is beating down because it ever sets. And you, after 12 hours of kind of like back-breaking toil to kind of drag this thing across, you finish, you put your ski poles in the ground and the place where you have finished is identical to the place that you started. <laughs> and the scenery has not changed at any point. And so the sense of progress is very, very hard to bear. It's, it's like it's, it's, your goal seems just as far away in some ways as, uh, as it was to begin with. And that, that certainly teaches you a certain mental fortitude. What little I have of that, I think I, I, I learned on an ice cap somewhere. It, it, gets, it gets very interesting on that, on that kind of mental discomfort side of things mm. uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about the preparation aspect of adventure that I think can kind of get lost? Uh, I think people think, oh, no, you just live an adventurous life, you know? Like, I, I think that people don't maybe understand the, the great preparation that goes into um, anything, whether it's um, uh, large or small, mental preparation for sort of a, a social experiment uh, or for a polar <laughs> expedition, okay, what are my materials? What's not going to crumble under me? Uh, in, yeah, in the, you know, what about risk management? Well, it's, 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 it's one of those things where it's, if you start, you are committing yourself to something. You're committing yourself to this, this new kind of world outside your comfort zone. You're going beyond the horizon. And in doing so, you're kind of casting off from the usual support mechanisms that you have. And it's in a very, very real sense when it comes to kind of both kind of polar expeditions and kind of uh, ocean racing. Um, because if something breaks, you have 
two options. Fix it mm-hmm. or hope like hell that it's not going to utterly destroy you. Like when your boot breaks. And like, so I was managing someone else's expedition, my good friend Ben Saunders, who's one of the most incredible people I know. And his boot broke two weeks into a major North Pole expedition. And he had to, he like saw, had to saw off a part of his cooking stove, try and weld that to the boot. He used his dental floss to try and sew parts of the boot together, like the, the sole of the boot. And this is what, what he was using. You have to kind of do that. But like what it requires uh, in terms of, Preparation. We we have this uh, phrase in uh, the adventure world, which is proper preparation prevents piss poor performance. If I'm allowed to say that, and that is the thing that we uh, that we focus on. And you think about these kind of risk management in, in, a, in a kind of few key ways. You think about you kind of plot risks in terms of impact and likelihood. So this thing is catastrophic, but it's highly unlikely, or this thing is kind of minor, but it's almost certainly going to happen. And then you have to kind of work through beforehand, like how would I mitigate this risk? How would I do so? And then the, one of the key things that you do is you look for the triggers, signs, uh, and you want to try and work these through, signs that something is going to go horribly wrong. And this is what you do, certainly if you think about ocean racing, it's what we do every day. Every day when we're staying out of the horizon, we're reading the clouds. And we're reading the clouds not because they're pretty or we want to see the face of Homer Simpson there. We... Um, <laughs> We're, we're trying to understand a trigger for something going horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, you know, huge gusts of wind. It's like a major storm coming at you. It's like the, the storm, the wind is going crossways to the current and it's just going to make for choppy seas. Like whatever it might be, you're looking for kind of triggers of risk. You become very, very aware of that and, you, and you're kind of constantly doing scenario planning around what if. I mean, there's actually, I know I've been going on a little bit, but there's there's one story that I think is kind of uh, instructive in this, in that there was, a, there was one moment we were very, very cold in the Southern Ocean, and the Southern Ocean is 90-foot waves of standard, you're just kind of going around and so forth, and we're all cold and tired, and there's like four of us sitting on the windward side of the boat, the high side of the boat, and our skipper comes out and is immediately hit by a wave and kind of thrown down towards the leeward side. So he's right above the kind of water as it's rushing past and in danger if another wave comes comes along, it could kind of wash him overboard. And all four of us jump forward and three of us, three of us kind of jump forward and get to the end of our harness lines and we're there like like the dog in the old cartoons where kind of Tom and Jerry are kind of teasing the dog that can't quite reach them. We were there just scrambling because we and thought and there was one guy, Glenn, who was like, who'd been constantly thinking, what if? So when the skipper came out, he was thinking, what if something happens to him? He had his hand already on his harness, ready to move uh, to another access point um, so that he could jump across and he saved that guy's life. That level of kind of those triggers, that, that scenario planning, that always asking what if, when you're kind of dealing with high levels of risk becomes hugely important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on just um, how adventure prepares you to cope and to deal, John? Like, what are your thoughts on that? How it prepares you to cope and to deal. Uh, there's a great phrase from, um, from military education that goes, what is it? Uh, planning is essential, but plans are useless. Yes. Or uh, what is it? The, it's like no plan survives first contact with the enemy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so uh, in the model I developed for understanding adventure, the first stage is preparation. It's the most essential. You, there are four characteristics. One is that you have to have the right team of people. A great group can make an awful party amazing, and a bad group can make an incredible party absolutely awful. Uh, the second is a location, so preferably someplace you haven't been because you, your brain functions differently in familiar versus unfamiliar environments. Uh, the third is having a mission, so something that drives the group, 
bonds them, causes others to want to participate. And the fourth is constraints. So especially when uh, environments are familiar, by limiting your options, it becomes exciting again. It's like if you've beaten Super Mario Brothers 200 times, if you can only play it small or can't get any power-ups, it becomes exciting again. I think that in the playing with all these characteristics, you end up learning a ton about how to deal with different scenarios. Yeah. Uh, that uh, I'm now incredibly comfortable in foreign environments. And you could drop me off virtually anywhere, and I'd feel like, okay, I can connect with another human being, often even if I don't speak the language directly, uh, but that I've been in enough scenarios and have put myself in enough awkward situations that I've, I've learned the lessons over time. That's interesting. Uh, Tony, you had mentioned to me that um, adventure had prepared you for business, but business does not prepare people for adventure. I think, well, it was just, it was one of the instructive things that I found was that I got, uh, at times, the opportunity to participate in adventure. And this is to, to John's point about the importance of the group with people who'd been incredibly successful in business. Yeah. And yet when put in a position, a very, very different and unfamiliar environment where they were feeling very, very stressed. They reacted in ways that were unbecoming of such leaders of industry. And you saw a level of a kind of prepubescent behavior sometimes that was, uh, uh, that was not desirable. So it was, it was amazing to see that it didn't quite translate the other way. But with, with adventure, certainly, I think, like, then, like everything that that John's been talking about so eloquently, applies to, especially the beginnings of business. I mean, you're, it's unfamiliar. It's, you're absolutely dependent upon a new team. You have the incredible constraints of no money, no resources. You're up against kind of huge competitors. Uh, I mean, when uh, when I started Chartbeat, uh, we were up against uh, these companies called Adobe, IBM, and Google, which uh, are are larger than us. I've heard of several um, of those companies. Yeah, yeah, they're doing they're doing pretty well these days. I hear. <laughs> it's amazing how many of those things translate. And one of the things that's been kind of very lucky for me in some ways is that people talk a lot about the kind of the stress of startup life and how difficult it is and so forth. And it, and it is. It's it's it, it, for, for many many people it's very stressful. I tend to sleep like a baby. And one of the things that adventure has prepared me for is a certain kind of level of zen about like the potential for disaster and having kind of absorbed the risks and being okay with that. And at that point, when you've done everything you can, when you've kind of made yourself as resilient as possible, because something will go wrong. That's the that's the core thing. Like something will go wrong most days. Mm -hmm. After that, you kind of just you're okay. I feel very lucky that uh, I've been able to kind of be much more zen about the whole kind of building of a business experience as a result of kind of the adventures that I've been able to go on in the past. Mm -hmm. You had a, um, uh, a phrase that you used uh, called uh, leave it on the last wave. Oh, yes. Uh, tell me about that. So uh, this is something which is very popular in, in ocean racing, which is, so if you think about what ocean racing involves, you're basically taking a group of, of 18 people in my case, you're putting them in a 70 foot tin can and you're shaking it violently for months <laughs> at a time. Um, this, and not give, don't give them any sleep, give them awful food and make them fear for their lives every four hours. You know, like that is, it, it creates kind of uh, the potential for, for disagreements, let's say, at times. And 
one of the things that is uh, this kind of one of the kind of core mantras, and mantras become very important, I feel as well, of like or like sayings that kind of get you through these things. One of the things is kind of leave it on the last wave, which is this fight that we had, this argument that we had, where you infuriated me to the degree that hasn't happened uh, before or since. Uh, you know, that happened on a wave a mile back. That's where that argument was. We have to leave it there because. Neither of us is getting off this boat for the next six weeks. We have to be able to work together as a team. We have to be able to do this stuff. So you leave it on the last wave. That is a kind of yeah, one of the kind of key things as you as you speak about uh, how to survive as a team in a in a tin can. <laughs> what are your thoughts, John? What are uh, sort of other things that um, are very helpful that um, entrepreneurs uh, could learn from adventure? There are a lot of stumbling blocks along the way. Yeah. Uh, I've set out for missions that were completely absurd, uh, that there was just the chances of success were slim to none. And and those low points, uh, there's something called the, the flywheel concept. I think Jim Collins talks about it in one of his books. And it's that, uh, you know in The Price is Right, there's that that wheel that spins, and I'm doing a hand motion as if any of the listeners can see this. Uh, it's very accurate, by the way. And uh, a flywheel is, is kind of like your bike wheel. If you put a lot of energy into it, it'll keep spinning. But in the initial stages, it's really hard to get it going. And a team or a business or, uh, or even a, an adventure so hits these stumbling blocks where like, you've just got no movement. And the key in those situations is to get just a small win. It might be just get some activity going between your teammates, challenge them to something silly, something easy, something they can succeed at, just so they get a win under their belt. And then get another one and another one and another one. And eventually the, the flywheel is spinning so fast that even if you hit other hurdles, it's not a big deal. It has enough momentum. And what people tend to do is they see these huge challenges and the, their wheel isn't spinning and they feel like it's insurmountable. But you just got to take it one step at a time. Like Tony said, when, you, you, you have, when it feels like the place you just arrived at is identical to the place you just left, you got to just get a little bit of a win and keep going and keep going. And eventually you'll have so much momentum that if a competitor comes out with a new product, great, whatever. We're still going. We're making money. We're churning. The team is happy. It's effective. There's a little other stumbling blocks. No problem. But you just got to know yourself as that team that produces results consistent, consistently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the ability to act constantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I have been completely fascinated by both of you. I, I couldn't uh, be more happy that this is our first podcast. We had a lovely chat. Uh, thank you both. Um, we've, uh, I would love to talk with you all day, but unfortunately you guys uh, have other lives that you insist on going to. Um, I, I want to thank you both for all your time today. Uh, thank you so much, Tony. Thank you. Uh, and uh, thank you so much, John. Oh, this was an absolute pleasure. And it's uh, just a pleasure to see Tony again. It's been too, it's been too down long. <laughs> yes, agreed. <laughs> Very good. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to the first ever Entrepreneur, a podcast ready for anything is sponsored by Intel. Small business owners can't afford to choose between A or B. If both help your business, you want A and B. With Intel-powered two-in-ones, you get performance and mobility, power and freedom. That's the power of and. Experience it at smallbusiness.intel.com.